The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Morning, church. Today's scripture reading is going to be out of Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 24. If you're following along on the Bibles under the chairs, it's going to be on page 940, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say, that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This has been the reading of God's word. Uh, On this uh, pre-Thanksgiving Sunday, we, we come to this passage, and if you heard it, it's a pretty complicated or can feel kind of a complicated passage, and it can kind of make you wonder, like, what does this really mean for me today? Does this mean anything? Because I don't really understand what was read, or I don't really find myself a, either a, a Jew. I don't know what a Gentile is. I'm not sure what Paul is talking about, and I don't know where I fall into this passage. But actually, what we're going to find this morning is that it, 
it is an incredibly important passage for all of us. And, and I come this morning with a little bit of urgency, and you might feel a little bit of pleading in my voice this morning as we go through this together. And, and that's because I think this is an urgent, it's not just think, this is an incredibly urgent passage. There's uh, inherent in there, if we understand it, there should be some pleading going on in our hearts and souls. And, and I think it should change, and, and just to, to be up front from the very beginning, I think it should change the way that we live life. I think it should change the way that you and I live our daily life. I think it should change the way that we go to work tomorrow or go to school tomorrow. I think it should change if you're married. I think it should change our marriages. And if you're single, I think it should change your singleness. If you're a parent, I think it should change the way that you manage your household. I think it should change the way that we do church. If we really, really understand and really get the, the heavy point of this passage this morning, it should affect it should, be, it should affect our lives and it should change the way that we live to add a bit of urgency to the way that we live our lives. Paul is writing this letter of, uh, that we call the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, the epistle of Rome, uh, to the church there in Rome. He's never been there, but it's a church that's made up of both Jewish converts and Gentile converts to Christianity. And he's writing, he's laying out, this is my understanding, or this is the, actually, this maybe the clearest, biggest picture that we have in Scripture where the gospel is explained. In fact, he tells us this is what's going on with this book in the very beginning after he has his, his introductions, his, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he lays out basically his thesis, his theme for this letter that he's writing to the Romans. He, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. And, and so what Paul is doing, he's laying out why the gospel, which means good news, is incredibly good news. And ever since we read those verses back in chapter one, it's kind of been a lot of bad news since then. And so you're like, you could be like, Paul, either I don't understand what you're saying or I understand what you're saying and I'm not seeing the good in this news that you're declaring. And the reason he's doing that is that none of us understand and comprehend and appreciate the good until we have the bad. We don't appreciate the good news until we have the bad news. Uh, we don't appreciate really good fried chicken until you've had really bad fried chicken. You know what I'm saying? You don't really appreciate really good sweet tea until you've had really bad sweet tea. You don't appreciate really good football until you're a Clemson fan. I'm sorry, that was a cheap shot. Just pretend I didn't say that. It, you don't appreciate the good until you realize the bad. And that's what Paul is laying out here. And there's a lot of bad to be laid out. Because he's laying out, he's saying, this is the answer for all that is wrong with the world. For all the ills, for all the bad that is going on. For all the sense that you have innately within you. That something is broken, that something is wrong. That something doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. For the longing, the deep longing that is in your soul. That every single person he's laid out has. Every single one of us have a longing in our soul. That we would feel and experience wholeness and rightness, that we would experience unconditional love and acceptance, that things would just work the way they should, are supposed to work. We feel a longing deep within our souls. There must be more. There's got to be something different. There's something broken with this world. And Paul is saying, here's the good news, but I can't get to it until I tell you, here's what is actually broken and what is wrong with the world. 
world. And, and what he's been saying through the past number of verses that we've been through is that what is wrong with the world is that though every single one of us innately knows that there is a God, we've exchanged the glory of God for an image, something else that we've wanted to worship and build our lives around. We've exchanged the truth of God, the truth that there is a God and that we owe him undying and unending loyalty and fealty, that we owe obedience to him, that, that he is the, the sum of all that is wonderful and beautiful, that everything beautiful and wonderful that we experience and that we see in this world are shadows that he's created to, to supposed to funnel back to him saying, there's something more. For every beautiful scene that you have, every time you look into a young child's face, every time you see a beautiful waterfall or you see the sunrise or you experience that morning where the, the birds are chirping and things feel clean and right and your soul is moved, what should happen is it should stir us to say, there's more to all that is beautiful that we see. There's something who, someone who is the beautiful one who has created this, that you were created by and you were created for. And yet there's this sin thing that has come up. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We decided, hey, we'll worship ourselves. We'll do our own thing. And then he's telling us that ever since that happened from Adam and Eve and every single person since then who has fallen down that path, that we are by nature and by choice all sinners against God, that, that, that has broken the world, it's broken us, and it's broken our relationship with God. And that leads us to this verse, verse 24, which be, or verse 6 that begins this section. He says, he, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. Uh, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The uncomfortable truth that Paul is landing on in this passage is that, okay, we're all sinners. We've all exchanged the glory of God for an image to worship and the truth of God for a lie. And here's what happens as a result of that sin is that there's something called judgment. That sin or treason against God cannot go unpunished or unrewarded. It cannot go unpaid. That above every single one of us lies this weight of judgment. Now, if you have lived life and you have sought glory and good and, immort and honor and immortality, man, then you have, you're gonna receive eternal life and it's gonna be great for you. But if instead you have not obeyed the truth, if you've, if you've been unrighteous, if you've done evil, there'll be wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. Now that's an incredibly uncomfortable truth. It's added to being just uncomfortable, the fact that we talk about judgment in general. You can feel it in a room when you start talking about it. None of us want to, we don't want to sign on to that. We don't want to think about that. 
We don't want to deal with that. Like Dale leading up to the Clemson game this coming week. He doesn't want to think about that, doesn't want to dwell on that. There's another cheap shot. I'm sorry. I apologize, Dale. But we don't, it's uncomfortable. But, but to add to that, not just the idea, this idea out there of there being judgment, but what Paul is laying down deep to us, like what he's laying down hard to our souls is a couple of truths about what that judgment is like. And that's, first of all, he tells us that judgment is certain. Did you hear that in the passage that, we're, that he's reading? That judgment is certain. Look at verse six and seven. He says, he that's God, will render or repay to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Look at 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. First of all, Paul is telling us that judgment for all of us who have sinned against God is certain. There's no way around it. God will render to each one according to our works. There's no way around it. We were singing about the judgment seat of God, the judgment throne of God. This is the clear teaching of Scripture all the way through, the clear teaching here that every single one of us will stand before God as creations made by God, as people, as human beings made in God's image, who then choose, both by nature and by choice, to, to commit treason against him and live a life that is self-seeking instead of God-seeking, that's self-centered instead of God-centered, that every single one of us will render, will be rendered back, to, back by God the reward or the recompense or the repayment for our works. Judgment is certain. But then he says, judgment is impartial. Did you get that in verse 11? For God shows no partiality. Uh, now, uh, I think it's hard for some of us, most of us in this room are fairly privileged people, uh, middle class lifestyle. Um, you know, we kind of live pretty comfortably. In fact, in the, the concept of the whole world, every single one of us is incredibly rich. We're probably everyone in this room in the top one to two percent of the entire planet. But for even in, as American standards, most of us are pretty comfortable. And I was thinking about this. I was riding with somebody in our church. I won't name their name, but they, we, were, we were riding and uh, down the interstate, and we got pulled for going well over the speed limit. And as, as the guy was, was coming up and was uh, writing the ticket for us, and he went back to the car, you know, you know what? I, my first thought was, hey, do you know anybody? Right? Do you have a friend, a, a relative, do you know a judge? Like, do you know somebody who can you know, get you out of this. And I was thinking like, do I know anybody that'll get us out of this? And, but here's the deal. There's no get out of jail free card with God. Judgment is absolutely certain and it is absolutely impartial. It is just according to our works, no other standard. According to your works, not compared to the person sitting beside you because you may compare favorably to them. You may not. But judgment according to the works in God's standard of holiness. Judgment is certain for every single person. It is impartial, but it is also exact. Did you get that in the verses that we were looking at? In verse 16, 
In verse 16, he says that on that day, when God, according to my gospel, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets. The things that no one else knows about that you, it's not just you, it's me too. The secret thoughts and intentions of our hearts, Scripture elsewhere describes them. But the secret, things, things that you have done that no one else knows, and every single one of us, the things that you have thought, that you have entertained, that you played with in your mind that no one else knows. The retorts to people that fly through your head, the arguments that you have with them, the things that you say to them after they walk away or say about them in your head or even to someone else, whispers secrets that no one else knows. Every single one is accountable by God. And the judgment is certain and it is impartial and it is exacting. Verse 17 through 23, he's talking to the Jews and he says, hey, you call yourself a Jew and then you think that you, because you're a Jew and you believe the, the Bible and you follow after, you, you follow the scripture in general, like you think that everything's okay, but he says, but verse 21, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That, you know what he's saying? He's saying that every single thing that we have done, no matter what we have said with our mouth or believed with our mind, the things that we have done are what we judge, are judged by. It is certain, it is impartial, and it is exacting. And then if that's not an uncomfortable truth enough, there's something incredibly, maybe even more like mind-shattering, particularly to the church that he was writing to in Rome that would have blown their minds, is that judgment, not only is that judgment certain and it is impartial and it is exacting, but he says that judgment falls on everyone, both the, those who are irreligious and those who are religious. Judgment falls on everyone, the irreligious and the religious. Did you get that? In verse 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law. So he's talking to the Gentiles. So we've got to think about a little bit about the, the way this, this book is written. It would be a letter written to uh, the church in Rome. And the way it would work is a letter would come in by somebody like Paul. And the church would, someone would get up and they would, as they were gathered like this, they would read the letter from Paul. And so as you're sitting there so far, if you're in a, a mixed group of both Jews and Gentiles, uh, you, you'd be sitting there if you were a Jew, because you are God's chosen person. You were fo probably genuinely following his law and you uh, were part of the, the sacrifices and the observation of the Sabbath and everything, you'd be sitting there as he's reading how these Gentiles have done all these terrible things and committed orgies and all these other things that he was reading about earlier. You would be, reading, you would be hearing those and you'd say, yeah, absolutely. Now those Gentiles, they're, they're bad over there. They've done all those things. And if you're a Gentile, you're sitting there and you're saying, yes, absolutely, that is exactly what I have done with my life. And if you're a Gentile sitting there and you, you weren't yet a believer, you were gathered with the people and you're hearing this read, you would think, yeah, uh, you know, I, my life is, you know, kind of does look like that, but I don't really, you, what you would be saying was, I don't really believe I'm accountable to anybody for, this, for these things I've done. Uh, yes, I, I, there's some things I've, I've done that I know are wrong, but 
yeah, yeah, everybody does some wrong things and I'm not really, if I don't believe in God, I don't believe there's anybody I'm accountable to, yet somewhere deep inside your soul is something's saying deep within you, saying, no, no, there is a God. And you push it down, you suppress the truth. No, 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 there is a God. And if there is a God, then you're accountable. There is a right and wrong, you're accountable. No, 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 I'm gonna push, push that down. And so when Paul is reading this to them, he says, all those who have sinned without the law, as the Jews who are sitting in the, the non-Jews who are sitting in the room, the Gentiles, without the law, you will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who we justify. Listen to this. For when Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. So what he's saying is, Every single person, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you have a sense in your soul of what's right and what's wrong. It's a sense of justice. Even if you say, hey, I'm okay doing this, there's some point there's a line in your soul where you say, but it's not okay to do that. And it's usually, isn't it, it's interesting how this works. Sometimes you know, like, I've crossed the line. Uh, okay, I, I did wrong. I don't know what I need to do, but I did wrong. So something inside you says that. But it's just interesting usually how we often take that standard and we push it away from us. So, so I'm okay in most of my things because I, even the things that I do that I know are kind of wrong, I can kind of explain away because I know my heart. Have you ever done this with yourself? Like, you know your heart, you know your intentions. I don't know how many times I've been in a conversation, we'll call them conversations, with Megan, my wife, and, and said, but, but that wasn't my intention. And I don't know how many times she has said, yeah, but it's not what you mean, it's, also, it's the way that you say it, it's how it comes across to me. It's not, we wanna be judged by our intentions, and we wanna judge other people by their actions. And God judges by both. He says, when you as Gentiles, when you do what is right and you understand that there are things that are wrong, then you are acknowledging that there is a God and there's a, there's a law in itself that you see in life. For the work of the law is written on their hearts, verse 15 says, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. There's, there's this kind of game that we're playing back and forth in our head. We know there's a law, there's no, we know there's truth, we know there's, ju there's justice, there's such a thing, there has to be such a thing, and yet we're also always playing these games in our head as our, our conscience is smiting us, telling us no, that's wrong, and we're kind of playing this game in our head. That's us Gentiles. The Jews would have sat in the same room as Paul was reading this, as the letter from Paul is being read to them, and the Jews would say, yes, those Gentiles, absolutely. They're not getting out of this. They don't have the law about eating shellfish and, you know, the Sabbath, and, you know, they can't eat barbecue. Like, like, they, like they don't get all those restrictions, but they have a law in themselves. They know. They know what's right and wrong. Uh, but they're not like us Jews who have, like, we're, we're like, we follow God more closely. We, we have a, a clear picture of who he is and what he's called us to do. And then Paul runs up to them, hits up against them, the religious in this passage. And he says, but you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and improve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, we have the way. 
and a light to those who are darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. Then he goes to that whole thing that we just read. Yet, you who teach others, do not teach yourself. You, you who preach morality, are you moral yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal yourself? You commit it. You preach against adultery, yet do you commit adultery yourself? Paul is, is locking what he's doing. He's locking all of us under the same judgment. The irreligious, absolutely. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you're not associated with church. You've been running and doing your own thing. There's no way out. It's like, hey, I'm not accountable. I didn't know the Bible said not to do X. So I'm, I'm going to be okay. What, the, what he's saying is that we, every single one of us, have something, something in our souls that tells us what is right and wrong and that we will be judged according to our knowledge of that. Uh, there was a, a pretty famous... Um, Christian writer and philosopher, Francis Schaeffer, and, and he described this passage sort of like this. He says, this is what Romans 2 is saying. Romans 2 is saying is that basically God is saying, I have an invisible recorder that is around your neck that has been recording everything that you have said and everything that you have thought and everything that you have done from the moment you were born until the moment that you die. And that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that and you say, hey man, I wasn't a Christian. I, don't, I didn't know what, I didn't really even believe all that stuff, so I shouldn't be accountable for it all. Yet he's gonna play this recording as if of our lives. And not only are we gonna see all the things that we've done that we're ashamed of, but we're gonna hear the judgments that we've made about other people and we're gonna be judged according to the same standard. Sort of like, you know, you know how angry you get with people whenever they pull out in front of you on the highway? And yet how angry you get with the people who flip you off whenever you pull out in front of them in the highway? That's the way most of us live our lives. There's this double standard that we have. And God says, no, that double standard is gonna be expunged away. And one day when you and I, when every single one of us stand before him, we will be judged by the standard that we ourselves judged others and ourselves by. And it will be certain and it will be impartial, and it will be exact. And then for all, every single one of us who are, you were Christians, or we profess Christ, or we grew up in church, or man, we're, we believe all these things, we, you know, we got the fish hanging up in our house and the bumper sticker on our car and listening to that station on the radio that we still ignore the internal knowledge that we are not living according to the law of God, what he's called us to do, what the, the life that he's called us to live. Every single one of us, if we were to live perfectly, we would have, we would receive eternal life if we have sought well-doing well and glory and honor and immortality. But for those of us who don't, the Jew and the Gentile, the religious and the irreligious, wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. There's this internal knowledge we, and also this internal measure that this passage is telling us about that we've been talking about. It's not just the external things that we do, but it's the things, the thoughts that we think, the secrets of our heart of our soul. 
So, so here what is what Paul is doing. So what we have is that we have that there is going to be for every single human being who has ever been and ever will be, there will be a moment when every single one of us stands before the judgment seat of God and we give an account for every action and intention of our lives. And when you know what that should do? That should make every single one of us in this room squirm. It should make every single person on the planet squirm. It should be an uncomfortable truth that keeps scores of people up at night. Because none of us come out clean. All of us like, have like the sword of Damocles hanging over our head by a thread waiting to fall down upon us. It locks us in. And there's no way out. There's no hope. Right? Because you can't undo what you've already done. If you could live perfectly from this moment on, you can't undo what you've already have done. And you may know yourself well enough to know that no matter how much you try to hold it together, that you're going to slip up and you're going to mess up. I can try. Say, all right, this week, my wife and I, we're not going to argue. My kids and I, I'm not going to yell at them. I'm not going to get cross with them. I'm not going to, like, lose my patience with them. I'm going to be a patient, loving father who, who, lead, who leads my children and my home gently and lovingly this whole week. And I might make it. I might make it to tonight. I might make it to Friday. But something's going to happen, and I can't undo it once it's done, right? It's like that date night that you go on with your girlfriend or your wife, and everything's going smooth until you say that stupid thing. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? And there's no undoing that. There's no taking a mulligan on it. One night, my wife and I were having a wonderful evening. This is a long time ago. She was early on pregnant with Sophia and we we're having a wonderful date night and we're out walking on the beach and we're, we're playing around, joking around and she jumps up, right? And I catch her in my arm. I'm gonna carry her on the beach. And I said something that still comes up to this day. <laughs> Guys, I don't know if you'll be on my side on this one or not, but I said, this is exactly what I said. I said, wow, your weight is redistributed. I was just meaning that her center of gravity had shifted now that she was pregnant. I was not saying, hey baby, you're fat. But you know what she heard, ladies? Absolutely, that's what she hid. And you know what? There was no pulling those words back. There's no baby, let's forget that ever happened. Here's what I meant. That was out there in the ether and there was no expunging it and taking it away. And that's what all of our lives are like. There's no magic eraser. There's no taking it down. We are all locked in, whether you're religious or irreligious, we're all locked in. Whatever standard that you judge by or, have, or think you're judged by, you have broken that standard and there's no way out. Your judgment is certain and it is impartial and it is exact. Except 
except for one hope. There's no way that we can undo it, but there's except for there being one hope. We're going to cheat ahead a little bit. Look in Romans 3, 23. Just cheat ahead just a little bit in this book and you see what the one hope is, all right? Thinking all that we've talked, been talking about judgment. Verse 23 of Romans 3, 4. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right? Bang. Stop right there. That is where we are. And are justified or made right. Or that word justification is a, a legal word where all those things that we have done that hang in the ether suddenly are cleaned away, are justified by his grace. We didn't deserve it. By his grace as a gift through the redemption, that's the repayment, the purchasing us from darkness to light, the purchasing us from sin and death to life that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a, see that word, a propitiation? That means a, a, that Jesus' blood paid for our sins to be cleaned. A propitiation by his blood to be received by, by good works, a, a propitiation by his blood to re, be received by a people who, deserve it, a propitiation by his blood to, for a, a people who are putting their life back together and trying to get clean, is that what it says? A propitiation by his blood to those to be received by what? By faith, alone. Simply saying, I believe that I am sinful and under rightful judgment and God, I believe that you sent Christ and through his death on my behalf, I believe it was on my behalf on the cross. By his shedding of blood, my, my sins can be cleansed and by his resurrection again, I can receive life again and I simply, here's what faith is. Faith is simply arresting. You, you know what you did when you sat down in that chair that you're sitting in right now? You showed a faith in that chair that it would hold you. And as you're sitting there now reposed in the chair, you are sitting by faith that it will hold you. And that's what it means to receive Christ by faith. That's the only path out for any of us in this room. And here's the deal. And here's where it gets incredibly urgent. And that is the only path out for your family members for your children, for your friends, for your coworkers, for the person who you pass on the street, for the single mother that's barely holding her head above water this morning, for the drug addict who is ready to give up on life, for the person who doesn't think they have anything to live for tomorrow, for the homeless and for the wealthy, for the career-minded and for the student is the only, only hope. 
they lie under the judgment of a righteous God for acts that they have done, no matter whether they are religious or irreligious, if they are not resting and reposing in the payment and the redemption of Jesus, they hang by a thread underneath the wrath and the judgment of God. And we live comfortable, happy-go-lucky lives when that is going on in our households and in our, on our streets and in our offices and in our gyms. The rightful, righteous judgment of God resting upon every single soul that you and I encounter. And we live blithely and consumed with our own deal. If I can just get to bed tonight, if, if the kids would just be okay, if I could just get the house clean, if I could get this project done, if I could just finish this series on Netflix, when you say it out loud, it sounds so silly, but that's what our, most of our comfortable, middle-class American lives look like. And the urgency and the weight of the judgment of God upon the people who we love, who we care for, hangs above them every moment. We should read this and not just say, God, thank you for saving me from that, but we should read this and say, God, what about them? What about my wife? What about my husband? What about my children? What about my neighbor? What about my mother, my, my father? What about my father? What about my neighbors who I, I love on, on either side of my house? What about them? It can't be enough simply to live those kind of lives and come in here on Sunday morning and listen to somebody talk and sing some songs and go home and be okay with it. It can't be okay for us as a church to lightly engage the community around us. You know what I mean by lightly engage, right? It's that my coworkers know I'm a Christian, but I never pray for their soul. My dad knows that I'm a Christian, but do I ever share the gospel, both the bad and the good news that's inherent in the gospel with him? Do we personally and we as a church hold back part of our chips because we don't really want to be bothered with thinking about? Or are we willing to push them in and say, hey, I don't care if anybody thinks I'm crazy. I don't care if anybody thinks I'm foolish. I don't care if it looks like it's a too big a job for a church this size. I don't care that I'm so tired now with three kids that I just think a lot about sleep. 
I was thinking about this 40 minutes. Grant me a few more minutes if you would. I was thinking this week about this passage and, and why. Why do, do I and, and do we together and we as a church, why isn't this urgent for us? And why don't we see more? This morning in pre-service prayer, we're praying, God, would you save some people? It's been too long since we've had a baptism. Like, why do we not see more? Why do we not see God move more and save more people? Why do you and I not have more stories about how he has intervened and interjected himself into our daily life in ways that we would not have imagined where we woke up one morning and we're just going about life and all of a sudden we start having a conversation with somebody and the rest of our day and an eternity has changed. Why do we not see that more? And I was thinking about this this story about Jesus where his, this man came to Jesus and he was pleading with him as a dad. And he was pleading with him as his, his child kept having these uh, like epileptic type seizures. And they were so severe that at times it would even throw the child into the fire, into the water. He was physically afraid for his child. And he knew it was demonic in its source. And he had gone to Jesus' disciples and he had told them about it and they had tried to do something about it and nothing had happened. They had prayed for him and nothing had happened. They had tried to cast out the demon, nothing had happened. And the man finally runs to Jesus and he says, please, please, master, help me, help me. Your disciples have tried and they can do nothing. Please help me. And Jesus, in authority and great compassion upon the man. He cast the demon out of the child and the child lays there like he's dead for a second because all of a sudden there's peace and he reaches the child and picks him up and the child is made whole and well again. And when he gets alone afterwards, the disciples pull him aside and they said, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? Why didn't we see anything? Why, God, Jesus, why didn't we see more salvations? Why didn't we see you move more in our lives? Why didn't we see more miracles, more evidences of your work and your mission in our lives, in our households, in our community, in our church? Why didn't we see that? And he says, his answer is interesting. It's recorded in two places. In one place he says, this kind only comes out through prayer. And then another time he says, it's because of your little and I was thinking about that. I'm like, but surely the disciples prayed, right? Certainly they had some, right, some faith that God could do this. That the I wouldn't have gone through the whole thing. They'd seen those get delivered before. And what, what I was really thinking about was I think what Jesus was saying was, he says, you're missing three things. He says, you're missing a burden. There's no pleading and there's no consecration. Because why would he say, this kind of only comes out by prayer. Some, some versions say prayer and fasting. Why, why, would he, why would he say that? I think first of all, he's saying, this kind only comes out if you really have a burden. This this kind only comes out, this life-threatening kind of situation only comes out. You only get to see God work in it if you have a burden, 
that you really, really care. This is a soul trapped in darkness under the judgment of God. And when it comes about by prayer, not just like, God, please do this, but a pleading kind of prayer, the kind of prayer a dad would make about his own child. Please do something, please. Please do something or, or I, will, I don't know how to live anymore if you don't do this. God, God, I don't want to play church anymore. I don't want to play Christianity anymore. I don't want to play middle-class, happy-go-lucky Christianity more, anymore. Let's, let's stop playing the game. Or would you please do something? Please, would you please move upon these souls? Would you please awaken them? Would you please do something in me so that I would care more? Would you do something because I can't make them see? Only you can make them see. Would you please do something in a consecration? And God, I am committed. I'm consecrating myself. I'm not accepting anything less. It only comes out by faith and by prayer. I'm committed to this, God. I'm setting my life apart for this mission and nothing else. I mean, there'll be lots of other things, right? But they become secondary to the primary thing. And we only see it as primary when we really feel that sense of judgment upon ourselves and upon everyone else apart from the covering of Christ over us. And here's the thing. The history of Christianity is the history of Jesus Christ empowering his people to have a burden, to plead for souls to consecrate themselves to his mission and to see him move in amazing ways. We're gonna do something a little bit different for us this morning. I'm gonna ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads. And we're gonna pray together. And we're gonna have a time of personal response between each of us and the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, if most of us in here are absolutely honest, we rarely want to think or talk about the judgment of God that is upon every person apart from Christ. If we're absolutely honest with ourselves and with you, which you already know, if we're honest with ourselves and with you that uh, we just don't care enough. We're more committed to having a good American life, being comfortable today or tomorrow, than to be absolutely and utterly consecrated and set apart for your mission. To see those rescued from the judgment of God by the sacrifice of God through Christ. God, most of us in this room, we aren't ready to have a burden 
much less to plead or to set ourselves apart. But God, we want to start right where we are, where each of us are, and pray that you would change our hearts. Now, between you and the Lord, I'm not even going to look up. This is unusual for us, but just between you and the Lord, at this moment, it's a sign of response. If you say, God, that is me, I, I don't care or I don't care enough, but I want to care. I don't know what it means to be consecrated and set my life apart for the mission of God, for the, the salvation of souls who are underneath the wrath and judgment of God, but I want to know what that is like. I want to be all in. I want you to help me to be all in with you for your purpose. I want, to, I want to have a burden. I want to plead with you in prayer and consecrate myself to this, to your mission. If that's you, just between you and the Lord, I'd like you to raise your hand to him. Father, you see the desires of our souls that you have placed there. God, as our raising of our hands is an act of surrender, God, help us to count the cost, help us to commit, God, help us to plead in our souls for the souls of our friends and neighbors and our coworkers and our children and our parents and our classmates. Commit us individually and as a church to this great end and let us not rest, let us not be content with anything else. God, help us to repent of light impact Christianity and to commit whatever that means for each person for your purpose to be fulfilled in our day and in our time. God, we've We've heard of your exploits. We've heard of your great deeds. God, in our day, make them known. In your wrath, remember mercy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.